This is a Podcast 225 production. Welcome to The Waiting Room on Podcast225.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Waiting Room. We are in episode 26, um, and we are excited to be here. We have some special guests to join us here. Um, And as usual, we wanted to just give brief disclaimers about our show. Um, We want to make sure that people know that the contents of our show are not meant to be mistaken for psychotherapy or any sort of counseling or mental health service. While we are mental health professionals, we wanted to just make sure that this is not meant to serve as any sort of substitute for a service. And so if you find yourself maybe wanting to get some help or, you know, it sparks the idea for you to be able to talk to someone, we want to make sure to direct you to the right place. Um, So you can always connect with a licensed mental health professional by calling one of your local physicians or your insurance companies, or you can always call the wellness studio as well at 225-448-3359. Your local hospitals and pediatricians, they also have good resources to connect you with one as well. Um, And we are also just to give another disclaimer about our show, The Waiting Room. Um, We are here to be able to bring you guys some content and information about current events that are going on, but also to kind of discuss the meaning behind the madness and from a a credible place. And we are really excited about today's guest. Our topic for today is we're going to be talking a little bit about hashtag me too and the campaign and the movement that is being talked a lot about in our media right now and the main purpose of our show today is to really change the narrative around sexual assault and sexual trauma and we have two amazing guests today um, with a lot of experience and are making a lot of um, bra- blazing a lot of trails um, in, in with this movement and we're excited to have them today and we're going to take a quick break before we come back and introduce those guests and we will be back shortly. It's Manners in a Minute presented by Manners of the Heart. We all agree we live in a disrespectful world. This week we've also agreed there is something that runs deeper than respect at the root of the disrespectfulness and that's love. Think about the early days of falling in love You couldn't get enough time together. You thought of ways to bring a smile to her face. You went out of your way to do things that delighted him. You were willing to put the best interest of the one you loved ahead of your own. If the root of disrespectfulness is selfishness, then what could happen if we look for ways to love unselfishly? What if we put the needs of others ahead of our wants? Rather than buying a cup of joe for yourself, skip it today and buy it for someone else. With each act of selfless love, we instill a little bit of respect back into our society. Promote your business or organization on podcast225.com. Podcast225.com is quickly becoming a weekly tradition for Louisiana listeners. Every month, thousands hear the weekly Clay Young Show. Every week, Clay sits with some of the state's most fascinating and entertaining people. Posting your company's logo on the podcast225.com website or having a professionally produced commercial air on The Clay Young Show is a great way to access a loyal and informed audience. Get more information by calling 225-214-1550. That's 225-214-1550. Welcome back Back to The Waiting Room. Welcome back to The Waiting Room. Katie Fetzer here, and we have some exciting guests for today's topic. Um, I'm going to give some introductions to them. First, we have Rachel Bear. She is a 
licensed clinical social worker and is the president and CEO of STAR. It stands for Sexual Trauma Awareness and Response Center. And she is a community organizer and nonprofit director with experience in a variety of programs, including initiatives involving sexual trauma, violence prevention, crime victims' rights, and also women's health. Um, She began working at the 19th Judicial District Attorney's Rape Crisis Center in 2008, where she was first hired as the volunteer coordinator and community educator. And then, flash forward in 2011, she was very instrumental in transitioning and rebranding an organization into a 501c3 nonprofit, which is now known as STAR. Um, Rachel was promoted to CEO in 2012, and through her leadership, has quadrupled the organization's staff and annual revenue in three short years, which is incredible. Um, This has enabled STAR to serve thousands of community members each year. Rachel graduated with a bachelor's degree in sociology and women's and gender studies, and like I said, has a master's in social work from LSU. Uh, And then we also have Rebecca Marchiafava. She has a master's in public policy and is the vice president of STAR. She is an educator, writer, and a change maker who has worked for STAR since 2012 and has made lots of contributions to this organization's development. Um, In her role as VP for STAR, she helps envision and build programs and partnerships to inspire positive action that will build a community free from oppression and sexual trauma something we should all get behind, um, I will say. Um, Originally from Baton Rouge, she holds a BA in English Literature with a minor in Women's and Gender gender Studies from LSU and a Master's of Public Policy and Education from Vanderbilt's University Peabody College. Welcome, Rachel and Rebecca. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yes, I'm so glad to have you guys. I cannot thank you guys enough for being here. Um, Just to kind of revisit the purpose of our show today, we are here just to use a platform to educate and inform people and for nothing other than that. Um, We like to be able to really, really speak to topics that are relevant to our community and and especially ones that get often brought up in media because sometimes, as we all know, media, things can get lost and the purpose of things and important messages can get really lost and sometimes even inaccurate inaccurate messages are sent to our society and our world about a certain topic that as, you know, mental health professional is, it's so true to my heart that I want to make sure that people actually get an accurate message. So you guys have a lot of credibility, um, a lot of education and experience behind what you do. And that is exactly why we're here so that y'all can speak from that place and um, maybe clarify some myths out there for people that are listening. And and who knows, maybe encourage people on their own to advocate for people who have been survivors of some form of a sexual trauma. Um, So in addition to those introductions, anything you guys want to add or in, in, in terms of your experience, you can just jump right in. Sure, I'll, I'll just mention a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so as you mentioned, I'm a social worker and Rebecca is a public policy major. Yeah. And so I feel like our our experience and our knowledge really complement one another. Mm-hmm. And, and we've really built a great organization that um, promotes a lot of social change initiatives. And, and I love that you reacted to that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> because I think for us, it is really um, moving beyond just the support for survivors, which is absolutely critical, mm-hmm. but it is pushing the needle forward and trying to get the community to really sure. acknowledge what each individual can do to impact change. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of my biggest reasons for reacting to that so deeply is it, I've been practicing for about almost eight years now, and I've worked, I want to say, on a weekly basis with survivors of some form of a sexual trauma. And it's not always women. It can be someone across any, any gender. Um, and a lot of the times, you know, most of the time, actually, there's a sense of shame that is so hard for them to break through. And 
that is so critical in their role in their road to recovery and healing and this movement that's going on in our world right now i think it's really important for us to highlight that and showcase to people why it is important and to not let the main message of it get lost and y'all are such a big part of doing that in our community and i think people need to realize that so maybe tell us a little bit about star and and, and about what you're saying like what exactly y'all are doing sure so as it sort of alluded to in my bio, we actually started out as a DA program. So here in East Baton Rouge Parish, Louisiana, we were at the DA's office. Oh, cool. So mostly criminal justice focused. We did some counseling, mm-hmm. um, but we had just a small staff of three people. Wow. Director, volunteer coordinator, and counselor. And so uh, we had a very small budget, very small capacity. Mm-hmm. And in 2011, we had this idea with the support of Hiller Moore, our current DA, to really uh, expand our impact by transitioning into a nonprofit. So with that transition, of course, came a lot of uh, headaches, (laughs) but a lot of good has come out. We are currently serving the Baton Rouge community and we have opened offices throughout the capital region. So we have an office in New Roads and we are planning to open an office in Gonzales this year. And we've also expanded beyond that reach to open an office in Alexandria and New Orleans. Wow, that's amazing. And yeah, so we now have a staff of 32 full-time and eight part-time. It's incredible. Incredible. Um, yeah. Congratulations to that. Thank you. And so we're really proud of the work that we've done. Um, and to highlight just a little bit about what we do for the community, you know, we're all community-based. We're funded by the federal government as mm-hmm. well as local donations. And so all our services are at no cost to survivors. Amazing. And so if anyone uh, at any point in their healing needs any support services such as counseling, we meet survivors at the hospital if they've been sexually assaulted and need mm-hmm. an exam. Mm-hmm. We do court accompaniment, law enforcement accompaniment, and we also actually have attorneys on staff to provide legal representation. So again, the the services are at no cost due to the community support we get. And so as you can imagine, we Mm -hmm. serve uh, about 800 people a year with just our services alone for survivors. Wow, it's incredible. And I just, I want to emphasize to people just so that they understand is it's so hard for people to take that leap, that leap to actually being in the throes of healing in their healing process. And sometimes something like finances gets in the way of them doing that. It serves as a burden or a barrier or maybe a defense, you know, not Mm -hmm. wanting to take that leap. And so for the for the fact that STAR is out there to be able to help you help anyone that's struggling as a survivor of sexual assault or a family member that knows someone that is, y'all are there to help. And if there is a financial barrier, y'all are there to be able to work through it. And I think it's important for people to know that, um, that might worry about cost and just know that y'all are out there Mm -hmm. um, and have expanded and are very much here able to serve our community and with our governmental support, which is important, I think. Definitely. Yes, definitely. And we also, I think that's part of why we try to do so much in the way of community awareness and education Absolutely. is that there are, well, and just to add to the stats in terms of how many people we serve, um, I also think it's important for people to know that in the 2016-2017 year, our advocates responded to 437 call-outs at hospitals across our three branches. And so this is, and when we say call outs, that's, you know, one of our advocates going to the hospital Mm -hmm. to, to be with a survivor of sexual trauma in the aftermath of their assault as they go through the forensic exam process. And so, you know, there are some times when there may be a high profile case Mm -hmm. or something that gets reported in the media, but this truly is something that's going on on pretty much a daily basis in our communities. 
And so it's just important to keep that in mind, especially as we are, you know, beginning to hear people speaking out yep. more. You know, it's it's really affirming to know that this is becoming more and more a part of our just public consciousness and awareness. Yeah, absolutely. And to piggyback on what you're saying, I just I, I think it's so important that what we're doing is is hopefully for those that are listening or have heard everything on the media, don't let it put a bad taste in your mouth about what's going on. Listen to credible resources. This is a very, very real issue. Um, it's important that we protect the voices of those who are survivors who are taking that step to reach out. And it's a very, very serious issue. And, and the numbers you mentioned are only the ones that happen to go to the hospital. Exactly. There's so many more instances of sexual violence and, and trauma that, yeah, where people are still not necessarily seeking out those resources mm-hmm. in the immediate aftermath. Absolutely. And and we also, you know, in terms of the numbers that Rachel mentioned about just the number of clients we see, we see a lot of clients who maybe have not sought support for decades and, and then come wow. forward to, to receive counseling and other services. So I think, yeah, it's definitely something that affects a lot of people and we're there for pretty much everyone, you know, mm-hmm. so. Absolutely. And I do want to touch on um, how you mentioned people that don't report. Absolutely, yeah. The actually, the Bureau of Justice estimates that in a given year, there are only about thirty-eight percent of actual rapes that are reported to law enforcement, and that's less than half. And so you can imagine with our numbers, and Star has a strong presence in this community, which Mm -hmm. I think increased the number of reports. But in so many of our rural communities that just don't have access or information, you know, so many of those people suffer in silence. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's a, a great, a great um, time for us to talk about Me Too and, and what that is. And, you know, the reason that we're bringing this up is because of how much recognition it's gotten in the media lately. And I and in my position, I've even actually had people ask, what is this Me Too thing? Have you heard about the, the Me Too thing? And um, and so I want to be able to explain to people exactly what that means, what it stands for. Um you know, for those of you that don't know, Me Too was uh, an organization that was started some time ago, actually. Um, it wasn't just recently that it was started because of everything that's been going on in our media. It's actually something that's been in existence. Um, it was actually founded by, her name is Tarana Burke, um, and she also, in her works for creating the Me Too movement, which was a campaign to set out to reduce shame of speaking out about sexual abuse. That was the the, the main purpose of her creating this. Um, and since she has created it, she's been named from Time Magazine's Person of the Year in her movement to break silence about sexual assault. That is the purpose of Me Too. So anytime anyone ever hears any other thought about it, know that go to the credibility, go to the source. The source is that's the purpose of it, and that we don't want that to get lost. Do you guys want to elaborate at all about Me Too and your work? Sure. So I think, you know, the first thing that comes to mind when you describe Tarana Burke and the work mm-hmm. she's done sure. and how she's finally, after so many years of her, her work with advocacy and, mm-hmm. and connecting survivors and empowering them, you know, it it does remind me, and I think it's important for everyone to acknowledge and honor the work that advocates have been doing for, for decades and even centuries. I mean, outside of the view of the public or or doing work that is not really publicly recognized. Mm -hmm. And so I do think it's amazing that now we're seeing more people coming together to speak out. I mean, I think obviously the reason that Me Too took off is because there was a woman who had a lot of privilege and visibility who spoke out and other people who also had that visibility spoke out. Um, And so when people saw famous, you know, women and men who had been... Uh, you know, victims of sexual violence, 
really say, no, this has happened to me. These have been my experiences. It really captures people's, it really helps people understand that, Mm -hmm. no, this is a real issue and it affects people. And to recognize that if you've known of someone for decades, you still may not know that they've had these experiences because we don't talk about it. And so really figuring out, okay, how can we make sure that we are talking about it, we're asking about it, but we're responding in a way that is supportive Mm -hmm. because the most important thing to continue allowing people the space to speak out is to provide that support and understanding. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as you're saying that I was, I can't help but think about our line of work as mental health professionals and the people that I've worked with it with. And I'm just so amazed at the strength that it takes for people to get to the point of actually opening up and sharing their story. And I just like to be able to tell the the public just as as we're trained it's not our jobs to sit there and make a judgment or determine and investigate if it happened or not so people need to stay in their lane you know it's not our job to do that our job is to be here and listen and validate and support people in their journey of sharing their story if that's what they choose to do in private or publicly in a form of advocacy and I think it's just really important in terms of the way that we're trained is it's not our job to investigate you know that's there's people that exist for that role and I think the public needs to maybe sometimes ask themselves if they're taking that step are they in a role where they're trying to investigate what happened or make a decision or make a judgment call about it or are they doing something else you know yeah we encounter so many survivors that will tell us that the act of speaking out even just to a family member or a friend was actually traumatizing I believe it. Because when they responded with a judgment or with a question, why did you do that? Why were you there? The survivor immediately feels that shame, shame. reinforcement. Everything they were thinking in their head already, yep. it gets reinforced by someone responding to their assault. Right. And so part of our our theory of change and how we want to impact the community is to give people the tools to respond in a supportive way. That's amazing. And we do a lot of workshops in the community. We actually have one today. And we have one in February and March, which really examine the dynamics of violence and help Mm -hmm. people build empathy for survivors and help them realize the way that they instinctually might respond can actually do more harm than good. Yeah, amazing. It's such great work that you guys are doing. And I think it's equally as important that we as the public have a responsibility in terms of how we respond to people that are going through this. Um, And a lot of the times our own perspectives can get in the way of the actual facts of what's before us or the way to be able to respond. And empathy building is something that is obviously needed if we look at where we are in our society with this issue. And I just couldn't thank y'all enough for the work that you guys are doing. Um, Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And if I could just add to, to what Rachel commented, you know, as it relates to victim blaming, I think a lot of people respond with those questions or with mm-hmm. those judgments because from their perspective, they're very well-intentioned. They care about the person who is victimized and they think that's, that's the only way that they can think of great point. to try and keep that person safe is to say, well, if you had control over what was done to you, mm-hmm. then you can change your own behavior and prevent this from happening again. Yeah, that's but, a great point. And unfortunately, though, what happens is that it does reinforce that self-blame, those, that sense of shame. And what it also does is it continues a focus on what a victim did in that situation or that instance Mm -hmm. and and what usually we see is that that person who was attacked or victimized 
they were not engaging in violent behavior. But there was another person who engaged in violent behavior who were not examining their behaviors and were not focusing that conversation on, well, what did they do? And how often have they engaged in similar behavior and gotten away with it? Because we actually do focus that judgment on the survivors and victims instead of on those offenders and people who are committing the violence. That is an excellent point. And it's so true because I think you're right. It's it's not always maybe an, an ill intention behind the person that's responding. It just may be that they don't know how else to. And right. that's okay. You know, we that's why we have professionals like you guys to help people learn how to be able to respond. So if you do have a family member and you're not sure how to respond, it's okay. Don't be shamed of that. <laughs> um, and I think it's important that you're delivering that message. Yeah, and what I always tell people is that it's okay to think, (laughs) you know, a judgmental thought. It's okay to have those reactions because Mm -hmm. we've all been socialized and taught to react in that way. And we're human. Right. But, but so sort of taking a moment though, to process that and, and actively choose to respond in a supportive way, in a way that, you know, is only interested in providing care and support for that person Mm -hmm. in the moment. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, exactly what, what we are talking about right now is hopefully in, in some ways, changing that perspective for people so that they can actually just build the self-awareness that you're talking about and yes. have like a check-in with themselves. And I also, as we're talking about this and for the listeners, I do just want to give you some, Please. some supportive yes. messages. So the two most powerful things you can say to a survivor that's disclosing a sexual assault is number one, I believe you. And number two, it was not your fault because I think survivors are so ready for that blame. Mm-hmm. They're so ready to feel like I did this. It was my fault. I mm-hmm. shouldn't have done those things. But as Rebecca was saying, we really need to start examining the perpetrator's behavior. And so as a person that is receiving this information, mm-hmm. immediately responding with, I believe you and it wasn't your fault is the two most impactful things you can do. That's amazing. And so simple and so clear. And I think that it's needed for people to be able to get something so simple and clear to be able to say and because our feelings sometimes can be so challenging when we experience them in these situations and I think just to touch on that statement of I believe you I think that it's a simple thing to say but it is also a very difficult thing for some people to Mm -hmm. actually believe and and because our culture uh, fosters a disbelief of survivors when they do speak out and so you know just as an example we've been seeing all of these um young gymnasts speaking out about um, Dr. Larry Nasser in his yeah. decades. Yeah, of, let's of talk about a little bit about abuse. that. Yeah. And, you know, there were multiple people in various institutions he was tied to who received disclosures from these young survivors of his, um, people who'd been victimized by him. And they didn't take action. They chose not to believe. They chose not to investigate. And we understand that, you know, for instance, Maybe a law enforcement officer can't just believe everything immediately, but what they can do is listen and take it seriously. And I think anyone who, whether it's from a family member, whether it's you know, through your job at an institution mm-hmm. or organization, it's so, so critical when someone does disclose that you don't dismiss it and you don't automatically disbelieve. It's very important to listen, to take it seriously, to ensure that it's investigated thoroughly and, and also to recognize that there may be people that we respect mm-hmm. and have worked with right. and care about, and we are completely shocked and blindsided that this could be something that they have committed, Yeah. but that we have to allow for that possibility and really take those disclosures and, and report seriously. Yeah, very well said. 
And this also reminds us of a few years ago, Jerry Sandusky mm-hmm. at Penn State, um, him abusing so many boys and, and young men. And it really calls into question, why are we so afraid of speaking up against people in power mm-hmm. when we know that children and girls and boys are being abused? Yeah. It's it's mind boggling. It is. When you look at the number of, of survivors, even at the Nasser trial, 160 girls and women testify. And you have to wonder what got us to this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the things we always teach and talk about when we talk about prevention, because one of our one of our messages about prevention is it's a it's an adult's responsibility to protect a child. And when a child is disclosing any type of behavior that is harming them, if they are expressing sexuality in a way that is too young for their age, sure. if they are acting out sexual things that you don't understand where that came from, those are really all indicators that they're not making it up. This is actually abuse. Mm-hmm. But you would be shocked at the number of people, of parents, of family members, that refuse to believe yeah. Because it's too ugly to think about. Yeah. It's it's shameful. It's scary for parents. But we deny and the more we choose to not do anything. Yeah, and be silent. The the more the impact of the trauma has not only that individual mm-hmm. but the numbers of individuals that could be at risk. Yeah. And you know what? I would even like to add to your incredible message that for anybody listening, you are affected, whether you know it or not, or think it or not, or feel it or not. The statistics show us that we all know someone, whether we're not aware of it, we all know someone that who have been through something like this. And I think it's really important, you know, a lot of times people, we, we might go through our day to day and maybe it's not something that's affecting you right now, but it, it does, it, it's impacting all of us. And I think it's important that we all find in our own ways to be able to just listen and be aware and have this message in our mind frame. You never know at some point while when there might be a, a situation where you want to act on something. So, mm-hmm. and I also just I always tell people about when I first started working at Star. Um, it was the first time that I'd ever done this kind of work. Mm-hmm. You know, I hadn't done volunteering before for an organization mm-hmm. like Star, and so it was such an incredible and kind of shocking learning experience for me because as soon as I started telling people about my new job and and the organization I worked sure. for, I started receiving disclosures everywhere and all the time I believe it and from anyone from family members to acquaintances to people I was just randomly meeting at a party and saying what do you do well this is what I do so I think you know that was an incredible experience where kind of the veil was lifted Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden I was confronted with the prevalence but on very human terms not just a statistic but real human beings who were sharing their stories with me. And so I, I do see the public having a similar experience now for those who, who've been exposed to the Me Too movement and campaign, mm-hmm. you know, and I see just regular people struggling with kind of those same questions and those, those same struggles sure. of how do we deal with this and how do we confront this. But, yeah. but the other thing is that I've seen so many survivors that I'm connected with sharing on social media, you know, messages of not just what they've experienced, but mm-hmm. feeling more empowered by this public speak out and by, you know, even the sentencing of Dr. Larry Nasser. you know, yeah. I mean, just seeing 
seeing offenders who are actually being held accountable can feel so empowering and supportive to people who have been silenced and who haven't seen their own offenders held accountable. Yeah, absolutely. And and why should any of us go the journey alone when we don't have to? Mm-hmm. I mean, we have resources out there. And if you're listening, um, I would like you guys to share, you know, how people can connect with you guys. What's the best way of reaching out? And Sure. So we have a 24-7 hotline. It is in all of our local uh, branches, Alexandria, Baton Rouge, and New Orleans. That can be accessed by calling 1-855-435-STAR, S-T-A-R. We also have a website, uh, star.ngo. We're also very active on social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And, you know, I think it's taking the first step and reaching out is really scary. And so I just want to remind people that reaching out on our confidential hotline, we don't require you to give us a name. We don't require you to tell us the name of your offender. And so really it's just an entry point where you can, Mm -hmm. maybe you have some questions or maybe you're just feeling some of the symptoms of of trauma and you want to talk them through with someone. Yeah. We, We have a confidential trained advocate to answer your questions and talk with you. Absolutely. And, and for those of you that, um, or maybe, you know, you're not directly impacted, but you just want some support along the way because you're not sure how to, you know, navigate around the issue. How, how do you guys service people that might be interested in a resource such as that? So certainly anybody can call our hotline and we talk to uh, family members and friends all of the time, talk them through that um, disclosure process and, and how to help their family mm-hmm. member or friend. We also actually provide support sessions for family members. Oh, that's great. And so if there's a spouse, a partner, a, a parent um, that they're, you know, person, the survivor is coming to get services from STAR, we will actually meet one-on-one with the what we call secondary survivor mm-hmm. to talk through how they're processing it. Mm-hmm. So we also offer our services to them as well. That's great. That is wonderful. Um, another layer. <laughs> I wanted to also add um, to those that might be working in law enforcement or in, in counseling roles or in mental health, or maybe you're a healthcare provider and you work in a hospital. Um, we at the wellness studio, we do a lot of trauma work um, with people that are on that end of it. And this can be, there's something called vicarious traumatization where we that are in the roles of maybe helping someone else, um, we can also feel sometimes those symptoms of trauma. And it can be very challenging for us as well. And so we just, we just want to remind um, everyone really that counseling is something that can be of support to you in that journey as well. Um, we are going to take a very short break and then we will be back to wrap up. Highlighting businesses that help Baton Rouge thrive. It's Hearts of BR, presented by Manners of the Heart. This week, Christian Engel, CEO of the Capital Area YMCA. I think what, uh, what I value the most about the Baton Rouge community are the people. It's a giving community, it's a caring community. Whether it's they're trying to better themselves or better their neighbor, uh, everybody here seems to really care about each other. Everybody here is trying to either improve their community, improve their fellow man, and really trying to make an impact on the lives and, uh, and the people that live here. I think respect is uh, not only how we feel about ourselves, but again, how we feel about those around us. Having relocated to Louisiana, uh, it's great food, great community. Just really uh, have a great appreciation for the preparation that goes into just making a good meal. And, and down here in Baton Rouge, people really put an all-out effort into that. This has been Hearts of BR. Learn more at mannersoftheheart.org. Welcome back to The Waiting Room. 
Welcome back to The Waiting Room, everybody. We are here with our guest from STAR. Um, and just to kind of stir back up the conversation before we close, you know, the Me Too movement that's been spotlighted in the media recently has definitely put a spotlight on survivors, but it also has on the offenders. Um, I would just kind of like to y'all to talk a little bit about, do you think there's any backlash for survivors with that? And Yes. There is always a risk for survivors telling their truth mm -hmm. and telling their story because the truth by and large will offend someone. You are accusing someone of something that in our society is taboo. It's so terrible. Um, so there is always a risk. And I think you're already kind of seeing you know, articles, people sharing on social media, saying things like, well, I don't believe that person. Uh, why did they wait so long to tell someone? Mm -hmm. why, they're just you know, using this media attention to falsely accuse someone to get back at them. And that's a really common thing we hear about in our work. In fact, almost any time we do a workshop, one of the questions is inevitably, but what about false reports? Do you guys serve people that false report? And I think it's one of the biggest myths around sexual yep. violence. And in fact, you know, the Bureau of Justice, who I referred to earlier, they do these studies on crime reports. And the amount of false, false reports is the same as any other violent crime false report, which is between 2 and 8% in any given year. And so we know it's not really significant. Mm -hmm. And in fact, what I the shocking statistic we use is, you know, when people are, are concerned about their sons, uh, brothers, husbands mm -hmm. being accused, mm -hmm. in fact, the statistics show that men are more likely to experience rape than be accused of rape. That is so incredible that people don't probably realize that either. Right. Will you say that again? <laughs> men are more likely to be raped than be accused of rape. And, you know, by one of the tools perpetrators use is, is poking at someone's credibility. Mm -hmm. They'll say, oh, well, she came home with me, or, you know, he was in my car, he, you know, mm -hmm. he wanted me, she wanted me. A and I think when we members of the public mimic the exact reasons that perpetrators use to silence their victims, we have a real problem there. Mm -hmm. And so whenever anybody asks me about false reporting, I give them a statistic. It's just like other violent crimes. And, and I remind them of the real struggle that survivors have with coming forward at mm -hmm. all. And that can range from the shame associated with telling their story or telling about their experience to the very invasive forensic exam that survivors have to go through when reporting to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And as women know, we hate going to the gynecologist. If you can just imagine... Uh, that being four hours <laughs> long, I don't think that that we are looking at a situation where people are blindly reporting and saying, oh, this happened to me to get back at someone. Yeah. That's not really a truth we see in our work. Mm -hmm. And just to you know remind about the statistic that Rachel mentioned earlier about 38% of rapes being reported and looking at, well, okay, a vast number, a vast percentage of rapes are not being reported. And the numbers in terms of that two to 8% of false mm -hmm. reports, that's looking at reports overall. So when we think about what is the greater injustice, you know, what statistically is affecting more people, it's absolutely, you know, rape and sexual violence itself and not false accusations. Yeah. So, yeah. The only way to the truth is through the facts, and that's what we're giving people right now. Mm -hmm. You know, we want you to know is 
question your own thoughts on things before you just believe them. And I think that it's really important for us to know the facts and, the, and, have, and, and know the information because it inevitably will support you in getting someone to get help or helping someone that you know has been um, a victim or a survivor of sexual trauma. And just one last uh, thing about that. We actually have a blog on our website. Um, and recently, Rebecca and our legal director, Morgan LaMondre, co-wrote a blog mm-hmm. uh, about parents being afraid of their sons being falsely accused. Wow. And it was all from Morgan, who has two young boys. It was from her perspective as a mother. And looking at her boys and you know, knowing that in this climate, there is a real possibility of people committing violence mm-hmm. against others. Mm-hmm. And so she talks about her experience and her inevitably having to come to the sort of acceptance that I have to understand that this is a possibility that my my yeah. children could sexually assault someone or they could be sexually assaulted. Right. And I think if parents, you know, don't want to think that and understandably it is a terrible thing to think about, but we know that so many family members and community members protect perpetrators that we have to allow for the possibility mm-hmm. that the person that's a great upstanding member of society, the the track team sure. captain, they could be very much guilty of doing these things. Yeah, I think it's important for people to know that. Um, can you share with us, maybe people, direct people to your blog and maybe also share a little bit about what people can do to maybe get involved? Absolutely. So if you visit our website, star.ngo, there is a tab that links you to our blog. We post every week. Uh, we highlight people that are doing the work. We call them agents of change. So we highlight our staff, volunteers, mm-hmm. community members. And then we also have think pieces where we talk cool. about an issue related to sexual trauma. And, and we really try to get the information out there and have people think a little bit more about it, kind of like what we're doing today. Mm-hmm. And so the way to get involved is certainly in any capacity people are, are, are comfortable. So there are volunteer opportunities. If people are interested in learning more about working with survivors, mm-hmm. we do have volunteers that work our hotline and that accompany survivors at the hospital. And we also have um, an engagement opportunity for community members called mm-hmm. our Prevention Action Coalition. And so we have committed community members that just want to do something. Mm -hmm. They don't want to work directly with survivors, but they want to be part of the change. And so we have quarterly meetings there where people can get involved, get information, and learn how to make a change in their own business organization or school. We also have a series of workshops coming up that Mm -hmm. people can come just to get more information. Um, In February, we'll have Dynamics of Sexual Violence, which is a three-hour workshop facilitated by Rebecca. And then we'll have another workshop in March called Healthy Sexuality. Cool. Which kind of um, reframes it as how can we be better uh, healthy people Mm -hmm. in relationships. And for those workshops, just in case people are listening or wondering, um, they're to the public. And is there an age range you guys recommend? Is it more for parents or geared to really just general public? Um, general public for okay. sure. So um, parents, professionals. Um, we've done some targeted youth program mm-hmm. in the past, and we do youth education. Okay. But, but yeah, the workshops that we host are generally just open to the general public. General adults. public. Adults. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. And the last thing I do want to mention um, is with the Me Too movement and with so much awareness being brought to the mm-hmm. issue, we are actually working over capacity right now. 
So in all of our branches, we have a wait list for services. Mm -hmm. And the way community members, if you want to reach out and you want to help us, is by donating. We rely heavily on community contributions. And all of that money is going to go directly into our services for survivors. And there is a donation link on our website Mm -hmm. if people are interested. Thank you. I appreciate that. And share us one more time how to contact you, maybe via phone, but also website. Sure. Our 24-hour hotline is one 855 Four three five S T A R star, and our website is star.ngo. Thank you, Rebecca and Rachel. Thank you so, so much Thank you for so being much. here. Um, we really appreciate it. It was um, our pleasure. Yes, absolutely. And for those of you um, listening, if you ever want to share or um, share our show, you can always visit us at iTunes, which is probably what you're listening to it now, or podcast225.com. We would love to hear from you. You can leave a rating, a review. Um, Our contact information is surprisinglywell.com is our website, and you can also contact the Wellness Studio via phone, which is 225-448-3359. Thank y'all. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to The Waiting Room. This has been a podcast225.com production. 